Well, welcome Grace Point Church and welcome to any guests who are with us here today. Even though uh, we are sheltered in place uh, and unable to meet together physically, we meet together uh, through the wonder of technology and we have this opportunity uh, to be together today on this Resurrection Sunday. Uh, great celebration for Christians around the world as we remember and commemorate what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. That he died, was buried, and rose again, gaining the victory over sin and death. And that we're here today to remember that, to remind ourselves of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. I'm going to begin by uh, just reading out of John chapter 20, a passage of the account of the empty tomb. And uh, let me begin in chapter 20, uh, verse uh, 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. Well, it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that, that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb, and she wept, and she stooped to look into the tomb. And so we have this account that continues of Mary weeping and grieving, and then Jesus appears to her, and she recognizes him. And uh, her grieving turns to great joy and wonder and amazement, really, as we see there in that passage of Scripture. And one of the things about grief, about uncertainty, and you can imagine these, these disciples are there, and their, their whole world is turned upside down. You know, the 11, Judas has gone. He has betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. There's been the crucifixion. Uh, their leader is dead in the tomb, or so they think. And all the followers, these women included, are crushed by uh, this news and what they've witnessed and experienced over the last several hours. And so hope is crushed. And uh, bad news seems to come in threes. We see that Back in chapter 13, Jesus already foretold that Judas was to betray him. Jesus was going to be leaving, and Peter would deny him at the end of chapter 13. Jesus is teaching them in this what's called the upper room discourse, a lengthy teaching session when they're in the upper room before Jesus is arrested and tried and then crucified. Uh, so in this passage, we need to remember what uh, probably the, the disciples were feeling and about the trouble they were experiencing emotionally, spiritually, and uh, the worries about the uncertainty of the future. And of course, you and I live in an adverse time, not as serious as what they were experiencing, of course, but yet a worldwide pandemic is causing us uh, great uncertainty, and we can have those anxious moments. We can have troubled hearts, if you will. We talk about having heart trouble, and physically, uh, that's never a good thing, and some of us have experienced heart trouble physically, and we know how it affects our whole being uh, when we've been through that. And yet there's also an emotional and spiritual heart trouble that can come our way. 
And so I've entitled this message, Treatment for Troubled Hearts. And we're going to look at John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We're going to back up in the Passion Week. And we're going into the, this part of the what's called the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus is comforting his disciples, his followers. Because as I said, he has uh, told them already that uh, one would deceive him and that uh, Jesus would depart and that Peter would deny him. And then we come to chapter 14. And chapter 14 contains one of the great I am statements out of the Gospel of John. There are seven I am statements that John records for us where Jesus self-declares and self-identifies that he is God. Uh, remember that I am statement is a reflection or an echo out of Exodus chapter 3, where God reveals himself to Moses, and Moses asks him, who should I say is sending me to the children of Israel in Egypt in bondage? And God says, tell them that I am, that I am has sent you. And so uh, these first century uh, Jewish people, these Hebrews, who are listening to Jesus teach, and uh, they recognize that there is an echo here. There is a declaration that Jesus is declaring himself equal with Yahweh God of Israel, that he is God. And of course, uh, that troubled many, troubled many, and it uh, confused many. And uh, so Jesus is self-declaring here. And there's one thing to go back to in times of uncertainty and adversity is the character of God and what he says about himself and the character of God in relationship to people and in re relationship to his people. And so we come to this, and uh, one of we recognize that this I am statement, which we find in chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes unto the Father but through me. It sounds very exclusive and intolerant, doesn't it, in our current day and age? And yet Jesus declares it, and he is inviting us to understand his declaration there. And so Jesus earlier, in verse 9 of chapter 14, says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus came to do the will of the Father and to reveal the Father. And many have stumbled over the fact that Jesus has declared these things and declared himself to be the Savior. And this action of self-revelation is important to us. And he gives his disciples in this passage some directions about his home and where he's going, his destination. And we're going to see that Jesus offers us peace for troubled hearts. Now, you know, I'm a human being too, flesh and blood. And uh, I have had moments of anxiety during this, during this coronavirus pandemic. Moments of anxiety with the uncertainty of the future, the uncertainty of what our church is going to look like uh, when this all uh, settles out. And the more I read, the more I listen, the more I understand that people are uh, basically saying things are really going to be different. And so that causes great uncertainty and it can cause us great anxiety and some very troubled hearts here, if you will. So Jesus is going to talk to us about having peace for that troubled heart. He's going to give us a promise for our troubled hearts. And then he's going to detail a path to everlasting liberation for those troubled hearts. And so let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day of life. Thank you for your sustaining presence in all of our lives. Thank you that you are the Almighty God and that you're working out your perfect plan. We praise you, Lord, for your goodness to us all. We thank you 
uh, for the, your presence with us, no matter where we're at, in our homes, if we are uh, with other folks, with our families, Lord, we pray for your protection upon us, pray that your Holy Spirit would give us insight into this passage, that you would encourage us through the power of your Spirit and through your word here today, for it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen and amen. If you see me shaking this mouse, it's because the screen is uh, going to sleep on me. And so uh, it's kind of distracting to me, but I don't want it to be distracting to you. So I will try to keep the screen awake and hopefully you will stay awake also. So on this Resurrection Sunday, we're going to look at peace for troubled hearts. Look at chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, beginning in verse 1, where Jesus states right up front, do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. Of course, he's not speaking of our uh, cardi cardio system necessarily. He's talking about our whole being, the core essence of who and what we are as a people. He addresses the reality that as human beings, we are always in the reality of being in trouble on one way or another, either caused by ourselves, caused by others, things out of our control, things in our control, uh, there's going to be difficulty in life. Remember in the book of Job, the earliest Old Testament book, the book of Job, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, of course, Job has lost everything. He's lost his family, his children, his, his wealth, his health, and uh, his friends come, remember his so-called friends come to uh, sit with him and give him advice. Uh, but anyway, one of his friends, Eliphaz, speaks in Job 5, and he says, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. For a man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. And the picture, of course, is of a, a campfire, and you know, when the wood's popping and crackling and the sparks are flying up, it's just a, a natural thing. It's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And so Eliphaz is speaking to Job here, and it seems like, that is the human experience, that there is trouble, and we are born for trouble as part of the human condition, as a, a, a result of the fall of Adam and Eve, a fall uh, into sin, a fall of rebellion against God, and it's one of the natural results. But I recognize through this time that we've been sheltering in place and unable to be with our friends and perhaps even your families, your classmates, especially I think of the young people and the children who are used to going to school somewhere that uh, they're unable to see their, their classmates and, and uh, for people who teach, you know, now you're at home and you're doing homeschooling and uh, a lot of things have changed, but we can experience the four D's, the four D's. And those four D's are, we can become disturbed, we can become discouraged, we can become downcast and we can become depressed. It seems like uh, those things filter into our lives. They kind of feed into our lives if we are not careful. And one of the antidotes uh, to that is to remember what Jesus said. He said he addresses the reality of trouble. And he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. And what is the antidote here? In the end of verse 1, it says, believe in God, believe also in me. Believe in God, believe also in me. It's a call to trust. <clears throat> it's a call to be persuaded about what Jesus is saying, who he is. And he's talking to his disciples who they don't know what's going on. They just know something's going on and things are about to change. They're living in great uncertainty. And yet 
you know, all of us have a belief system. All of us have a worldview about what we believe and why we believe it. We may not experience that. Even the atheist, and I was an atheist at one point in my life, that is a system of faith. That is a system of faith. You're placing a lot of faith in the fact that there is no God when they state it so uh, forcefully in, in their writings and in their discussions. But faith needs adequate gr grounding, doesn't it? Uh, it is to experience serenity and overcome a troubled heart. And the object of our faith is the, is the, uh, the proof that there is something worth believing in. The effectiveness and strength of faith, as one person has written, in fact, it was J. Hudson Taylor, uh, early missionary to China, the effectiveness and strength of faith are bound up with the greatness and dependability of the object of your faith. The greatness and dependability for Christians is in Jesus Christ, in God, in whom faith, our faith resides. And uh, Taylor went on to write, have faith in God means to hold on to God's faithfulness. It's not our faithfulness that keeps us in right relationship with God. It is God's faithfulness that he has provided. So Jesus calls us to belief, and he grounds his disciples' faith by showing them in this paragraph. He's doing this extended teaching, and he's not going to leave them in this unmitigated disaster that they think is happening to them. They think the whole world is turned upside down. So the peace for troubled hearts, verse one, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In our current situation, and I'm reminded of this every day because I want God to remind me of this, is that things are not out of his control. Things may be seem to be out of the control of the World Health Organization or the world's governments, or in science, it seems out of control that we're not making progress, and yet it's not out of God's control. Believe in me, believe in God, and believe also in me. And then in verses through two through three, there is the promise. We've had peace for troubled hearts. Now there is the promise for troubled hearts. Remember the disciples are experiencing great uncertainty. Look at verse two. Jesus is the dwelling place. Look at this in verse two, where Jesus says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Uh, this is a picture actually coming out of Israel, Old Testament Israel, and uh, in the Gospels of when a man and a woman were planning to get married. It was called the betrothal period, the betrothal period, where there was a period of time where they would work up to the wedding, okay, the actual wedding, when it would consummate the decision they had already made previously. Uh, that betrothal period, the groom would go to his father's house, and he would prepare where they would live. He would prepare the rooms and whatever space they had. He'd be prepare a place for his bride to come. So this is a picture, and Jesus is using that picture that these, these uh, early, these first century Jewish people, his disciples, knew exactly what he was talking about. And so he said, I'm going to prepare in my father's house are many dwelling places. In other words, there is lots of room. There's lots of room for all that are part of the bride. And of course, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ elsewhere in scripture. And so this promise, he is our dwelling place, the reality uh, for uh, this promise. And he speaks to us with absolute honesty. He says, if, if, uh, 
if it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. You know, Jesus, as God, is righteous, holy, absolutely perfect, the Bible tells us, doesn't make any mistakes, does not lie, does not sin, absolutely holy and set apart. And remember, we talked about the good shepherd a couple of weeks ago. He is the absolute perfect good one. He is the good shepherd. And so he tells us there in verse 2 that he speaks with absolute honesty. And then in verse 3, it looked at verse 3. He goes to prepare a place for us. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And so Jesus functions as the forerunner. He is the forerunner. It's a word that is used. He goes to prepare a place for us. And that's one of the great thoughts and doctrines of the New Testament about our Savior, Jesus Christ, is that he goes ahead of us. He is the firstborn. He is the one who has uh, gone in, into eternity uh, before we do. We follow in his steps. He is the, the, the forerunner for us. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, the writer of Hebrew writes, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a great high priest forever. And so one of Jesus's roles in, in uh, his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father is he is our great high priest. He is our forerunner. Isn't it nice when you go someplace new to have somebody who's familiar with it who can lead you around? I remember when my wife and I went to Macau uh, in, over uh, in China, and uh, Paul and Diana had been missionaries there for many, many years, and they showed us and took us around. They were our forerunner, if you will. And uh, so we had great confidence and great peace about it, and we could relax because even though we didn't know the way to a restaurant or the way to a church building or wherever, we knew that our forerunners had been there before and they knew exactly the way. And so Jesus functions this way. And that's why Christians do not have to fear physical death because Jesus has already experienced it. He is for, for our forerunner in that. You know, uh, that uh, terminology is used in uh, extra biblical writings from the first century. It was used of uh, the Roman army, actually, it was used of the ones who went before the main force, and they made sure they knew the way, and they would lead the main force. It was also used of uh, the pilot, little pilot boats that would lead the ships into Alexandria Harbor. And so that's the picture of a forerunner, that safe passage in this journey. And he will bring ultimate triumph. Look again at verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, and where I am there you may be also. He will receive us to himself. He's looking forward. We're looking forward to the second coming of Christ when he will come and bring us all to him. And he provides us an everlasting dwelling place, an everlasting dwelling place that Jesus does. There's many dwelling places. There's room for everyone. And I was thinking of dwelling places. And as I've told my church, Grace Point Church before, this house that I'm in right now is a dwelling place. It's the longest I've ever lived in one dwelling place, in one home in my life. So fully, not quite a third of my life has been in this one physical structure, which amazes me because uh, I've lived in a lot of different houses through my life. But this one is the longest one. But even then, this is temporary. This is not my everlasting dwelling place, whereas Jesus Christ 
is my dwelling place. No matter how comfortable I get here and how much I like this and enjoy it, it is not the ultimate. And we look forward to the ultimate, everlasting, eternal dwelling place with Jesus Christ. And uh, people ask me, what is heaven going to be like? And there are some indicators in Scripture. But all I know is that uh, wherever Jesus is, that's where we will be. And uh, it will be in the New Jerusalem, as we learn in the book of Revelation, as John writes his vision later in life. And so uh, we are doing that. And then so Jesus Christ uh, tells us there in verse 3, and in verse 4, and you know the way that I am going. Uh, he's kind of setting up the disciples here, I think, to ask another question. And in verse 5, Thomas does not disappoint. You know, he, I think he gets a bad rap by being called Doubting Thomas. I think Thomas was one of those guys that sat in the front row and always had his hand up saying, I got a question, you know. Uh, I remember in school, there were the, some of us would sit in the back and pretend like we knew the answer to uh, the, to the to the question, and yet Thomas was that guy up front with his hand up and asking the questions. And that's what he does in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And all I know is, thank God for Thomas. I'm glad he asked that. And that's where we come to the path for everlasting liberation. We've had the peace for troubled hearts, the promise for troubled hearts that there is a future and a hope. He is preparing a place for us. And then the path for everlasting liberation in verse 6. And that's where we come to the great I am statement. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus Christ is the way. His response in this passage, uh, he talks about basically the way is reconciliation having been at peace with God, our creator. Secondly, he's the truth. He's the one who illumines what truth is for us. And he is the life. He regenerates us. He gives us true life, everlasting life. And so Jesus does that. He is the way, the truth, and the life. In Job chapter 23, Job writes, or said, but he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. There's a picture throughout scripture of God's will and God's way. We see it in Proverbs. And uh, we often think of rules and boundaries as something negative because uh, we're very independent here in the West. Uh, and yet these ways are bounded to keep us safe on the path that God has for us. So the psalmist writes in Psalm 27, 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in the level path because of my foes. And of course, the foes are many, even in our day and age, there are people who are uh, just uh, not uh, trying to lead us in a good path. Proverbs 10, 29, the way of the Lord is a stronghold to the upright, but ruin to workers of iniquity. And in the New Testament, of course, the early church was known as the way uh, in Acts 9, Acts 19, uh, 22, 24, uh, numerous times uh, before they were called Christians. It was just the way. They were following a path. Jesus alone is the way. Uh, one thing about living where we live is we're on a major airway as airliners and airplanes leave Seattle and go to points east and west. And I have an app on my phone uh, so I can just look on the app and I can see what airplanes are above us. And it'll give a, an identifier for them, their altitude, their speed, where they came from, and their destination. 
And uh, so it's kind of, again, another minor hobby of mine, but it's always fascinating to me to think about when I see the, the contrails up in the sky uh, heading east that I wonder who's on that, who's on that airliner and where are they going, why are they going there? And what people are up there and what, what are their lives like right now? And so, of course, it's not as much as it was before the pandemic, but uh, there still are a few. And once in a while, I'll see one coming across a different direction. And it's uh, coming across the polar ice cap from Frankfurt or other places in Europe and coming across going to San Francisco. So they're usually higher and uh, they've been in the air longer. And so it's just kind of fascinating to see that. But, you know, there are people in perhaps you've known some, perhaps you are one who says many roads, all roads lead to Jesus. All roads lead to God. All ways are the right way. We're all going to end up in the same destination. Of course, that is a fallacy that is popular today because people don't want to believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the only way. Uh, but imagine if you were at the ticket agent and getting a ticket and you want to go to Rome, Italy. And uh, he says, well, I've got a nice flight to Sydney, Australia. And you said, no, does that go to Rome? No, it goes to Sydney, but it's a nice flight, good food, and a good movies that you'll be able to watch. Yeah, but I want to go to Rome. And Well, I've got another flight. It's on Southwest. You know, they're always on time, and it's going, it, it's going to Miami. Uh, you say, is it going to Rome? No, it's not going to Rome. Uh, but you say, well, I, I, I need a flight to Rome. And the ticket agent will just say, well, all flights go to Rome. And you'd say, that's ludicrous, that is ridiculous, that is stupid, because that's not the truth. And uh, not all roads lead to God. And so Jesus Christ is declaring that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. He alone provides the way. The Reformers called it sola Christos, Christ alone. And he provides the map of how we get there. And it's by belief in him. And it says that he is the truth. He declares he is the truth. This is the illumination of what is true. Uh, I think it was Alexander Solzhenitsyn said that one word of truth shall outweigh the whole world. One word of truth shall outweigh the whole world. And Jesus alone is the truth. You know, there are many decoys out there in our lives that can distract us and lure us into the wrong things all the time. I was thinking back, uh, Don's brother, my, my brother-in-law, uh, was a, a duck hunter, a bird hunter, and once in a while I'd go out with him and help him set up the decoys, and uh, these duck decoys or goose decoys, and we would set them up because we wanted to fool the real ducks and the real geese to come in and land and we could hunt them. Uh, and the world is much like that. It has decoys out there for us, many decoys. And it's trying to lure us in things that look attractive, things that look safe, things that uh, really appeal to us. And yet Jesus Christ is the only way because he is the truth and he defines the truth. An evangelist from the last century, H.A. Ironside, uh, was occasionally, he was a traveling evangelist, a preacher. Uh, he was associated with Dallas Seminary. Uh, but sometimes his sermons were interrupted by people who would uh, just want to do a verbal argument with him and say, well, there's hundreds of religions. How do you know uh, what is right? Excuse me. What is right and which one is true? And uh, Ironside would always respond. He said, uh, all other religions. Let me read it for you. The quote here. He said he would answer that. He said he only knew of two religions, two religions in the world. 
One, he would say, covers all to that expect to get salvation by doing something. One, by doing something. But the second one, he said, is Christianity. And it's very simple. And it's, uh, he said, you're saved by something that's already been done. And that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. He's taken the sins, our sins, upon himself on the cross of Calvary. And he has rose again, giving, giving the victory over sin and death. And so we are saved by what Jesus Christ has done. Remember, he said on the cross, it is finished. It is paid in full. And uh, so that's how he has done it. And so Jesus Christ is not only the way, he is the truth. And thirdly, he is the life. That's the regeneration. And I've said this before, that the, the spark of life that we have within us, uh, yes, we can try to stay healthy, extend our lives. We, you know, but God numbers our days and really life is given to us by God himself. And we see that in uh, the creation of Adam from the dust of the ground. And when God breathed into him, that's that soulish, nephish breath that gives him life. And of course, we have, uh, it, by being born of it, inherited it. We are regenerated as believers in Jesus Christ. Not only do we have physical life, but it has uh, a number of days. But yet, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have eternal life forever and ever. And uh, that cannot be taken away from you because God provides that forever. And so Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Alone, he is the life. And so today, as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, uh, remember what Isaiah said in chapter 1 of Isaiah. He said, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And so that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. He has cleansed us, purified us, and by belief in Jesus for everlasting life, we have a future and a hope right now. Everlasting life doesn't start after we physically die. It begins the moment you believe in Jesus for everlasting life. So how can you be saved? It's through the way. Jesus is the way. How can you be sure? He is the truth. How can you be satisfied? He is the life. For those who do not believe in Jesus for everlasting life, you are on the wrong way, the wrong path, the wrong road. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are on the way that he is taking care of you, even in the midst of the difficulties we are experiencing. Uh, I think I've used this illustration before, but Harry Blondine was uh, a, a, a tightrope walker. If you remember the Blondine family, he amused and amazed thousands upon thousands of people as he made his way over Niagara Falls on a slender rope stretched from shore to shore. You may have seen pictures uh, from the last century of Blondine crossing Niagara Falls. He never faltered or failed, but Blondine had a secret. As he made his way over the rope, he would keep his eyes fixed on a large silver star of which he had erected at the other end. The star was the center of his attention and guided him to the other side. As you run the race this year, as you think about the way, the truth, and the life, you need to keep your eyes fixed on the author and completer of your faith, the bright and morning star, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has run the race. He now bids us to follow him and run the race, keeping our eyes fixed upon him, the author and finisher of our faith. Dr. James Gray said, who can mind the journey when the road leads home? Who can mind the journey when the road leads home?
So this morning, take these words to heart. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. And Lord, we do pray for uh, our essential personnel in the medical field, law enforcement, delivering groceries, working in grocery stores, all those who are taking a risk by being exposed to the coronavirus because they are essential to our health and well-being. We do pray for them for encouragement, for perseverance, and that you would keep them safe. And Lord, we thank you for our church family, for the guests who are with us today and their extended families, Lord. And we pray that each one of us would grow in Christ today, that we would really rejoice and exalt in this Resurrection Sunday, that you would be honored and glorified in all of these things. For it's in Jesus' powerful and precious name I pray. Amen and amen. So, blessed Resurrection Sunday. It has been good to be with you. And we look forward to the time when we can gather again together physically uh, as we uh, look forward to that. So blessings today and to your family, and may God have great uh, will and work in our lives this week. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Please stand as the church scattered worships together.
Oh